0: Well, please take your Bible at this time and turn back to the book of Philippians and we're going to resume our study in Philippians this morning in Philippians chapter 4 starting in just the first couple of verses. We uh, ran out of time last time, and uh, you know so, some of you get very, very frustrated with me when I, when I leave you with blanks that are left unfilled in, so I went ahead and just raced through it in the last five minutes, but uh, at reflecting on that time, there were a number of things that we need to go back and look at, and a couple of other things that um, I think are well worth a second pass through this text so that we can give it the uh, time that it deserves. Um, we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 4, the last chapter of the book, and um, uh, you know, the Bible is so terribly relevant. Uh, it, uh, the discussion of what Paul's going to talk about here today is a topic that um, really most churches don't deal with. And that is the topic of uh, disagreements that happen in the church. That doesn't happen here, I know. Does it happen in your church? No. Um, you don't have to be a Christian for very long. You don't have to be a human being for very long to understand that disagreements are just part of what it is. Uh, to live as a person, and uh, like so many things um, in the church, little things can turn into very big things that can end up jeopardizing the unity of the church, the maturity of the church, the mission of the church, the work of the church so that um, and you guys may know stories like I do that that some little disagreement that happened you know over um, what songs we 're going to sing in Sunday school. Ends up splitting the church, and the end result of a little disagreement turning into a conflict that can that can potentially uh, break off uh, the church, um, demeans the name of Christ. Uh, it, it it jeopardizes the mission of the church. Uh, it calls into question whether we really know the Lord. I mean, after all, if we're out there saying, as Second Corinthians 5 says, we're ambassadors for Christ, right? And what is an ambassador? They go on behalf of someone else to give them a message, right? And our message, according to 2 Corinthians 5, is you can be reconciled to God through Jesus. So why don't you be reconciled to God? And, and they're thinking, yeah, but you can't even be reconciled with one another in your church. So our credibility as gospel witnesses is called into question when we don't deal with disagreements in the church the way that God prescribes. And so right out of the gate in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul tells us, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. And he's just talked about a group of people who have left, who have departed from the church. They've become enemies of the cross of Christ um, uh, back in verse 19. And so he, conti- he uh, admonishes the Philippians there to stand firm and to not fall away the way those other people did. And then verse 2, I urge Euodia and Syneche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, just this is all review from last time. If you weren't here last time, you get a little sense of the context here. Uh, he first calls the believers to stand firm in light of what we looked at in the previous verses, uh, really an admonition to not fall away and then he introduces Yodia and Sinki, who are two ladies that we don't know anything else about them other than what 's said here. And uh, he says to each of them, individually, I urge you, and I urge you to live in harmony. Uh, literally, it means to think the same. Uh, it's a call to be unified, to be of one mind, to work out whatever your differences are for the sake of gospel unity. And uh, we asked last time, what's the disagreement? And, of course, the text doesn't tell us that, because uh, for Paul's situation... Um, you know, obviously his readers knew what the disagreement was. This was a disagreement that was public enough that Paul felt the liberty to just say it openly to the whole church as he sends the letter to them. But again, the point for our purposes is not to try to figure out the disagreement. The point is, what does Paul tell believers to do when they find themselves in a disagreement with another fellow brother or sister? What are we supposed to do? And his answer is very simple, to live in harmony with one another. So we should expect disagreements. We saw that last time. This is, again, by way of review. Disagreements don't need to turn into conflicts. Um, we're different, aren't we? We have different opinions. We have different backgrounds. We don't see things the same way. And if that's okay. You know, that, that's okay. The problem is if we let a disagreement become an occasion for sin, then it turns into what we call a conflict, and now we're in trouble. So we need to recognize that disagreements don't need to turn into conflicts. Um, The church is the context where disagreements should be worked out. One of the most helpful things that Paul says here is in verse 3. He says, Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women. Now, we don't know who the true comrade is. Apparently, Paul had had a man picked out or maybe it was another woman, we we don't know, someone picked out in the church who was going to come alongside and help these two ladies to work out their differences. And we don't know who it was. But the point is, he says, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here's his point. The church is supposed to be the context where we find help to work out our differences. The church is not a place where we say eh, that 's none of my business i 'm just going to stay out of it if it 's about the unity between a brother or sister in Christ, it is according to Paul here the church 's business to help them so so getting very practical you know if if some little disagreement that you hear about in the parking lot after the church or during the meal at awana or you know you 're on the phone in a small group during the week or something like that and and, and you witness a brother or sister falling out of fellowship, I would take this verse to mean you have responsibility to go help them with that disagreement. Um, and and that, that is the point. And when we don't do that, what happens? That disagreement turns into a conflict. That conflict that doesn't get resolved turns into anger and bitterness That anger and bitterness turns into resentment. And and now people are walking in here to have corporate worship, right? Corporate worship. We're coming together as one body of Christ. And yet there is brokenness in the body. Now, if you're reading your Bible carefully... Jesus is gonna say in Matthew chapter 5, if that's the case, you need to go be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come to worship. Remember that? Remember if you're bringing your gift to the altar, you remember someone has something against you, go and be reconciled, right? So that, that jeopardizes corporate worship. It also has something to say about communion, because later on in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's gonna talk about the, ne- the necessity of unity when you come to the table. And, and there may be people that because of a disagreement or a conflict and resentment and bitterness, they're, they're not taking the Lord's table. So you see, this is not a small issue. This is a significant corporate worship, uh, unity of the body type of issue. And, and the church, lest I state the obvious, we need to be real enough with one another that we can do this. We don't close our eyes and look the other way. Out of love and a desire to see the unity in the body, we go and say, hey, I I heard you and that other person after dinner the other night. It seemed like you guys weren't uh, getting along so well. Um, have you been able to work it out with that person? And if they say yes, you say praise God and that's the end of it. If they don't, you say, well, what's going on? How can I help? As it says here, you know, to come and help them, right? To, to come alongside and assist them. Uh, and if necessary, to urge them and say, God would want you to go reconcile with that person. So often these conversations go, well, it was no big deal and, you know, i just ignore it and it'll go away. And, and can, can I just remind you of something that the Bible makes very clear? Ignoring problems do not make them go away. In fact, conflicts that happen between people that are ignored make the problem worse rather than better. Now, I know most of us would rather go to the dentist and get a root canal than have a a conversation with somebody that we're disagreeing with to try to work it out, right? I know there are way more things, uh, painful things we'd rather do than do that. But but can you see what Paul connects it to here? Look at the end of verse 3. Help these women who have shared in what? Shared my struggle in what? In the cause of the gospel. Do you think he connects it to that for no purpose? He connects it with that to help the Philippian church to see that this is about the work of the gospel, ultimately. And that work can be jeopardized through something as simple as two ladies who aren't getting along. Okay? So again, this is all review, but the church should be the context where disagreement should be worked out. Um, We don't need to turn there, but Ephesians 4.13 says unity is one of the two main indicators of a healthy church. So to have people running around with disagreements that aren't being worked out, that is like going to the doctor and having him come back and saying, I got some bad test results I got to share with you. That's what it's like for a church. It's an indication of some sickness, some illness in the church that needs to be addressed. So how should believers handle disagreements and conflict? I'm so glad you asked that question. So let's uh, talk about this. And this is just a review from last time again, and then we'll pick it up in the section of your notes there, uh, starting with getting practical. But let's just uh, remind ourselves what we talked about last time. First of all, we need to strive to be of one mind because of our common bond in the Lord. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 2, he says, stand firm in... I'm sorry, um, I urge uh, Yodia and and Syneche to live in harmony, and then notice the little last phrase there, in the Lord. You can you could translate that as because of our common bond in the Lord, you need to work this out, ladies. Because God has brought you into one body to where you are sisters in Christ now, you are part of his body, because of Jesus, you need to work this out, is what he says. The second thing we saw is we did kind of a little word study on that little word, um, be of one mind. Remember that there in chapter 4, verse 2? We did a little word study last time. We saw a couple of things that the Bible relates to this issue of disunity. The first thing is we need to guard our hearts from pride, that the Bible connects disunity in the church and disagreements amongst one another with the issue of pride. So we need to guard our hearts from pride. And then the put on there is we need to intentionally cultivate humility. Philippians 2, 3 uh, through 5. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And uh, do not look out for your own personal interests uh, only, but also for the interests of others. And then what does he connect that to? What, what's verse 5 about? Have... Oh, come on. How long will we do in Philippians? Come on. Have... This attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about the incarnation, the kenosis. So so this idea of cultivating humility, considering one another as more important than himself. How, how many disagreements and fights happen because we think our way is best? Pretty much all of them, right? And and what he's saying in Philippians 2 is we need to be of the same mind. Well, how do you do that? How do you, isn't this great? How do you take people that are vastly different, right? We all are vastly different. How do we How do we all get along? That sounds like Rodney King. I'm sorry. How do we all, on the basis of the Bible, work out our differences so that we can have unity? How do we do that? Do we just pretend those differences don't exist? Well, no, because then we have superficial relationships. How do we do it? Well, Philippians tells us exactly how we do it. We consider one another as more important than ourselves. And when I really think that your opinion is more important than mine, if I really think that your interests are more important than mine, that is going to radically change our relationship, isn't it? That's going to give us a whole new way of looking at differences. And lest we miss the point, Paul reminds us. Oh, by the way, um, that's what Jesus did. He was the Son of God. He was the second person of the Trinity. He he sat at the right hand of the Father, and yet he was willing to humble himself to come to the earth in the incarnation, putting our interests above his own. As Mark, as uh, the Gospel of Mark tells us, he came not to be served but serve. And he's the model. Jesus is not asking us to do with one another something that he hasn't done himself in coming and humbling himself even to the point of death, Philippians says. The fourth thing, we need to purge our minds of worldly thinking. We saw last time that there's a connection between conflict and worldly thinking. When we set our minds on the things of the earth instead of the things of heaven, we're going to get upset about all sorts of things that Jesus doesn't care about. We get all caught up in things that are worldly things and those cause us to have really strong opinions about things that the Bible does not care about. This is, those things are not the issue. We get all caught up about the wrong things. So, we need to purge our minds of worldly thinking and that, believe it or not, plays into our ability to be unified with one another. And then finally, to renew our minds in the Word. When we, when we turn away from worldly thinking and we saturate our minds in the Bible and let the Bible renew our thinking, that assists us to have unity with one another. You know, how do you take two people that are very different and and make them unified? Well, when this person humbles themselves, sets aside their interest, and says, well, what does Jesus say about it in the Bible? And when this other person humbles themselves and puts aside their interest and says, well, what does Jesus say about it? And if both people are humbling themselves and submitting to what the Bible says, what's the Bible going to do? It's going to unify them. So, renewing our minds in scripture bring about unity and help us then to handle disagreements. Now, let's get very, very practical, and this is the part that I raced through in about three minutes last time, and, uh, we're, we're gonna, um, we're gonna downshift here, get in the slow lane, and, uh, and go through this with a little more time and care that the text, I believe, deserves. Okay? So, how do we get very, very practical with what Philippians is calling us to do here? Okay, how do we get very, very practical in this? Well, number one, we need to deal with our own sinful response first. When we have a disagreement with somebody, what do we want to do? What's the first thing? When we have a disagreement, what do we want to do? Come on, be honest. What's that? Justify yourself, okay? And lash out. Lash out. When you have a disagreement with somebody, who in your mind has the bigger problem? And who is right? And it's obvious to even the most casual observer. I am, right? I had a, I had a teacher in engineering school. He was brilliant. And, and he'd have some engineering problem that would start on the whiteboard in the front, and then he'd get going, and then it would turn to the whiteboard on the Right? And he'd go down the length of the classroom. He's still doing the problem, right? And, you know, we're, we're all keeled over. And, you know, he's going to the back of the wall, and he'd get to the answer, and we'd be like, and he'd say, the answer is obvious to even the most casual observer. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, don't know how we survived that one. But anyway, what we need to do is take what Jesus said seriously in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to turn back there, and let's look at this together. You guys know These verses. But these are disagreement-solving verses, okay? Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is really wrapping up his discussion on his sermon here, he turns and says this in verse 3 of chapter 7. Why do you... Look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Are you thoroughly convicted? What does Jesus say? He's saying a couple things here. When we're in a disagreement, we are prone to think that the other person's issue is huge, right? Right? And if we had any contribution to the disagreement, it's very small. When in reality, Jesus is saying the opposite is true. We're going after our brother. Oh, he's the one that's wrong. He's the one that doesn't get it. He's the one with the, with the wrong issue here. And Jesus said, you're going after a speck when you got a log coming out of your eye. Remember, sin, especially pride, is like a carnival mirror, right? You ever been to the carnival? You go stand in front of the mirror. And you walk up there and you're like, I look like Shaquille O'Neal in that mirror. You know, you're 7 1 or whatever he is. He's a tall guy. Anyway, um, that's what sin is like. Sin is like a carnival mirror, it magnifies the sin of others and it minimizes my perspective on my own sin. And Jesus is here to tell us no, the reality is the, exactly the opposite. In a conflict, my sin is the most significant. I'll say that again. In a conflict, my sin is the most significant. Jesus continues. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. I mean, does that make sense? If you're angry, and you're bitter, and you're resentful and you 're selfish and you 're prideful, and you think that your way is the only way and you 're trying to work this thing out with another person isn 't that kind of hypocritical you 're trying to point out what they 're doing wrong, and you got all this sin in your heart and and Jesus just says it the way it is you 're a hypocrite first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother 's eye so, so the the first very practical step that the Bible is going to tell us in a disagreement, in a conflict situation, is I have to deal with the sin in my own heart first. I've got to deal with whatever is there first. And and, uh, since every conflict involves two sinners you're probably not going to find that one of those sinners is the axe murderer that does everything wrong, and the other one is the saint that does everything right. That's probably not what you're going to find. What you're probably going to find with two sinners that have a conflict is that both of them have some responsibility. It may be 60% his and 40% hers. It may be 90-10. It may be 80-20. Whatever it is, there's, there is ownership that has to happen on our part. We need to deal with our own sinful response first. And, and notice Jesus says... Um, uh, uh, When you take the log out of your own eye first, a couple of things happen. The first thing that happens is you're going to see clearly. Do you see that in verse 5? Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's profound if you think about it. Okay, so, so, So let me see if you're tracking with me. What are you incapable of doing Till you remove the sin, till you deal with the sin in your own heart first in a conflict with somebody else. What are you incapable of doing, according to this verse? Seeing what? Yeah, let's expand on it a little bit. Seeing things as they are. Okay, we can say it like this. We don't even see the situation clearly until we deal with the sin in our own heart first. And, and, and maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you and the spouse have gotten into it, or you and one of your kids, adult or little, uh, maybe a coworker, maybe extended family member, friend, and, and, and you feel so strongly, you are, you, you, you are so convinced that you're right and this is the only way to do it, and I can't believe the other person. And, and, and then God amazingly works in your heart. You humble yourself. You see your pride. You see your anger. And, and you confess it, and you, and you seek forgiveness from God and from the other person. Does that change your perspective? Isn't it amazing how it's like, brrr, you know, God puts a pair of, you know, like, you, I don't know, any of you nearsighted? You know, you go to the doctor and, and he puts up the chart and you put the things on and you go, and you look at the chart, and you're like, uh, G? No, it's an E. Oh, E? You know, you, you can't even read the thing, right? And then, and then they put the little thing on, they dial in your prescription, you go, oh, yeah, it's an E. I can see all the way down to the 2020 line. That's what confessing your sin is like, it brings clarity to the situation. And what Jesus is saying is that until we humble ourselves and deal with our own logs first, so to speak, we're not even seeing the situation clearly. Um, Not to mention that we're being hypocrites. So we need to deal with our own sinful response first when we deal with conflict. Number two, we need to guard our hearts from temptation. Guard our hearts from temptation. Solomon says in Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow." The springs of life. Now, what are some... I put some examples up here, but when you're in a conflict or a disagreement with somebody, what are some of the things that you're going to be tempted in? Because you understand that a disagreement is like a perfect recipe for all sorts of temptation. Right? So I put up a few of them up here. We're going to be tempted to gossip, aren't we? We want to go tell our friends about how bad that person is or how unreasonable they were being or you know, we want to get on the phone or get on the text or get on Facebook or whatever you get on to do that. And Right? We're, we're prone to talk to other people sinfully about our disagreement with somebody. We're also prone to get angry and to be bitter, aren't we? We're prone to get angry and... And be bitter. And uh, texts like Ephesians four thirty one. You remember that verse? Let all if you, say it with me if you know it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you, away from you, along with all malice. You remember, remember what Paul does in that verse? He gets out his Greek thesaurus, right? Remember this? He gets out his Greek thesaurus and he looks up anger, and he goes to all the synonyms and he finds all the Greek synonyms for anger, and then he's like. Bitterness, wrath, anger. He, he's saying exhaustively, you must repent of any and all forms of anger, from the explosive kind, to the crockpot kind, to the withdrawal kind, to the bitter kind. Whatever type of anger you deal with, you need to repent. And then verse 32 be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So you need to repent of that because when I'm being, when I am in a disagreement or a conflict with somebody, I'm tempted to get angry and bitter. Now now let me ask you this. No, let's 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 huddle up as a family. Um if you're angry with somebody and you have to work with them, how does that go? How's it go? Icy, cold. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? You know, you're 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 in a wana Wednesday night. And you're telling the little ones about Jesus. And it's icy with the person that's doing that with you. Right? Well, how's that going to go? It's Christmas Eve. And you've got family in town. This family does not know Jesus. And you want to be a witness to them. Be a light to them. Have gospel conversation with them. But you and the spouse are dealing with some of this. How's that going to go? Right? You see how this is totally a gospel issue? And uh, lest we get too personal, if you back up a few verses in Ephesians 4 to verse 26, Paul says, um, You know what happens when you let the sun go down in your anger? What's the next verse? You give the devil an opportunity. You've heard my illustration. You go to the door. You open the door. Hi, my name is Satan. Can I come into your house and be a part of your family? When we let the sun go down in our anger, we say, yeah, come on in. That's exactly what we do. We do that in the church. We do that in our homes. So you see that, that, that a conflict is an occasion for huge, huge temptation for other sins. And, and maybe, maybe that's why it's strategic for Satan to try to create disunity in a church. Because he knows that a little disagreement over what brand of coffee we buy can lead to all of these sins that end up running the gospel into the ground in that church. Another temptation to avoid, to be distant... As Ephesians 4.3 says, we must learn to preserve relationships even though differences exist. You know, that, that's, a, that's a real mark of spiritual maturity. And we don't have time to look at it in, a, in Ephesians 4.3 right now. But um, mature Christians know how to preserve and build a relationship even though differences exist. Junior hires don't know how to do that. No, no offense to any junior hires here, but, but you know it's it's like junior high, where you you know they're either your best friend or your worst enemy. Well, a mature believer in Jesus Christ knows how to say, I can love you, I can have a relationship with you, I can grow in a relationship with you, even though we don't see eye to eye on everything. I mean, we, we've got to be able to do that. So there's a temptation to avoid, to be distant, to be cold. To just say, well, I'm going to go sit on the other side of the church. I'm going to withdraw from that small group. I'm going to go take another ministry. But if you miss everything else this morning, would you see what that says about Jesus and the gospel that we preach? Would you just feel the weight of that? And I know, just being real here, that's hard, isn't it? It's hard to work out differences with somebody. It's hard to humble yourself and go and say, you know, I don't think I responded the right way there or I misunderstood you. Will you please forgive me? Can we work this out? That's hard. It takes grace. It takes humbling yourself. It takes Jesus working in you. But let's see what's at stake if we don't do that. Okay, you with me? Other temptations that come to mind that I'm missing here? Other temptations that happen when we're in a conflict with somebody? Yeah. Uh, to try and get things, work things out on our own? On our own. <laughs> in the old testament, uh bigger words needed a tree. That tree in the new testament would go across. Right. Very good. That's really good. What are what are some ways that we try to resolve, and deal with disagreements and conflicts on our own without really making it a gospel solution? Throw words at it. What's that? Throw words. Throw words at it. Well, we, we talked about one big example last time. You just sue the person, right? You just sue them. I mean, when it when it's a a conflict related to, you know, financial matters or, or something like that? Sure. Okay, so the point is we need to guard our hearts from temptation in disagreements and conflict because a, a, a disagreement, you understand, a disagreement is an occasion for dozens of other sins if we're not careful. Uh, number, what was it, three? We need to commit to personal reconciliation. Turning your Bible to Luke chapter 17, I want you to see this. We can't be unified in a church. We can't do what Philippians four two tells us to do without a commitment to personal reconciliation. Look at uh, Philippian or uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter. Uh, and again, you guys know these these verses here. Uh, Luke chapter seventeen, verse three. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day, saying, I repent, then forgive him. Uh, That is um, one of the key texts, and we could look at other places also, like uh, Matthew 18 or other places that refer to personal reconciliation. But um, this this is talking about personal reconciliation, that when a conflict happens and you've sinned against somebody, what does the Bible tell us here that we should do? What should we do? What's that? Okay, well, if, if somebody sins against you... Um, and they come to you saying, "I confess, I repent." Then, yes, what God wants to do is, is to grant forgiveness to them. Absolutely. What if you're the one that sinned? Okay, let's let's do some truth and advertising uh, stick drawings here. Okay. So let's say here's you, and and here's some other person. And remember, I'm a pastor, not an artist, so don't laugh. Um. And there's some there's some disagreement that's happened, Um, and a disagreement is an occasion for what? Dozens of sins, sins, right? And uh, let's just let's just pick a few of them. Okay, we've talked about pride. It's an occasion for pride. It's occasion for anger. It's an occasion for gossip, okay? And so when you get in a conflict, when when one sinner over here gets in a conflict with another sinner over here, uh, what does a sinner tend to do when he's sinned against? He tends to sin in response, right? Isn't that what we tend to do? When a sinner gets sinned against by another sinner, they tend to sin back because that's our flesh, that's our weakness, that's our fallenness. So you have some disagreement. It's an occasion for sin, isn't it? And and, and you know in a conflict, um, I think most of you have been through the biblical counsel training here, and I do a talk on conflict where... In a conflict, a conflict happens basically because I'm being selfish and I want my way too much, right? That's, that's the reality of James chapter 4 verse 1. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts? It's your pleasures that wage war on your members, okay? The reason we fight and quarrel is because we want our way too much. We're selfish. But whenever a disagreement happens, whenever a conflict happens, and now this person has sinned against this other person over here, and they've sinned in response, they're both angry, they're both prideful, maybe they're gossiping, maybe they're bitter, maybe they're uh, doing all sorts of things. What's the first thing they want to talk about if you can get those two people in the room? What's the first thing they want to talk about? They want to talk about this, don't they? Well, if if you would just listen to why my reasons for painting the nursery wall this color, or having this brand of coffee, or you know, and that's superficial, but when we get together to resolve a conflict, what, what inevitably we want to talk about first is the last thing that really is important. And what needs to happen is the sin in each heart needs to be resolved first, and then as Jesus said in Matthew 7, then you can see clearly to work things out with your brother. And that's what Luke 17 is really talking about, that that if I have sinned against my brother in anger or in pride or in selfishness, I need to go to them. And if someone comes to you humbling themselves, confessing their sin, what you need to do is to grant forgiveness. Um, Most of you are familiar with with Ken Sandy, uh, his book, The Peacemaker. Um, I use this outline all the time because it's so good. He calls these the seven A's of confession. The seven A's of confession. Because typically, this is how a Christian does confession, right? This is how it works. Sorry. It's okay. All right, let's go to lunch. And that's how it works, right? Saying sorry is not confession. It's not confession. It's not a bad thing to say, but it's not confession. Confession is when you go to everybody involved in whom you sinned against. And that's always God, 1 John 1, 9, and often other people, Luke seventeen three. Okay, So you have to go to the people that you sinned against. Secondly, you avoid making excuses. Ken Sandy says you avoid words like if, but, and maybe. Those are blame-shifting conjunctions is what those are. Those are words that ruin a confession because they turn the confession into blaming the other person or making excuses for what you did. So we want to avoid words like that. The third thing is we want to admit specifically what you did, both attitudes and actions. This is not confession. I'm sorry for what I did. Because it's not specific enough. You know? I've I've said to people, and maybe you have too, what did you do? <laughs> it's like, you know, what did you do that was so bad? Maybe, maybe I didn't wasn't aware of it, or maybe, uh, but you have to be specific in what you did. Fourth, Ken Sandy says we acknowledge the hurt because sin always results in in hurting somebody else in some way. Five, we accept the consequences. And you understand that, that forgiveness doesn't mean all the consequences go away. We understand that, right? Um, you know, you may, you may uh, have a disciplined situation with your child and a, a toy gets taken away and, and you've trained your children in the things of the Lord and they know that, that when they sin, they need to go ask for forgiveness. So, you know, you take the toy away and, um, you know, they come back to you and they confess their sin, you grant forgiveness. That doesn't necessarily mean they get the toy back. Right? There are people in jail whom God has forgiven when they've repented, but God doesn't just remove their jail sentence. So we accept the consequences, and that, that's a real big help. A, a person's willingness to accept the consequences for what they've done is a huge fruit of repentance, in my mind. Alter your behavior, because again, confession involves repentance, and repentance means that you're going the wrong way and you're going to start going the right way, so somewhere in the confession it's very helpful to say, and what I should have done is what I should have said is right that 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 shows recognition that you understand what how God called you to respond in that situation, and then finally, to ask for forgiveness. One of the reasons that saying sorry is not good confession is that if you just say sorry that th- there's nothing You have not requested the other person for anything. When you say, I'm sorry, they're going to say, okay, don't worry about it, no problem. But when you say, will you forgive me, you're asking them to do something for you. You're you're asking them to grant you something. Um, You're asking them to pardon your sin, to to forgive your sin. And that's why we think of forgiveness as a fourfold promise. Forgiveness is a promise for four things. To not dwell on the incident. That's the mind aspect. Uh, Forgiveness has four aspects to it. And this is also from uh, Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. If you say to somebody, I forgive you, if you grant forgiveness, what you're saying is, number one, I'm going to discipline my mind to not replay the video over and over and over and over and over again. If I've forgiven somebody, I have said I refuse forgiveness to play this thing over and dwell on it in my mind. That's the mind aspect. Number two, there's the history aspect, and that is I'm not going to bring it up again and use it against you. If you forgive somebody and they sin against you the next week, you don't say, man, I just forgave you of this last week. What are you doing? We don't get historical in that regard. The history test is we don't bring it up and use it against the person. The third aspect is the gossip aspect. We don't speak to other people about it. If you've forgiven the person, you are saying, I'm not going to go talk to other people about it. And then finally, you're not going to allow it to hinder your relationship. This is amazing. I think that the most fundamental shortcoming that Christians today have in understanding forgiveness is somehow they have disconnected in their mind forgiveness and reconciliation, In other words, you can forgive somebody without trying to reconcile with them. I've talked to people that have gone through divorces. Oh, I forgave my spouse, but I don't want anything to do with them. I've forgiven my adult child, but I don't talk to him anymore. I've forgiven my mom, but I don't talk to her anymore. It's like, what? I mean, just imagine if God did that, right? Keith, I forgive you that, but I really don't want anything to do with you anymore. Is that what God does? Does he say, well, I'll forgive you, but I don't want to have a relationship with you? And praise God, that's not what he does. No, he, he forgives us, he restores the relationship. So forgiveness includes the fact that you're making an effort to reconcile with that person. Okay? So again, this is review, but but this is important because when you have a disagreement or a conflict with somebody... You've got, to, you've got to understand biblical reconciliation. And, and unfortunately, confession and forgiveness are not things that the church does well today. We don't do these things well. And uh, we need to practice them the way the Bible describes. So commit to personal rec- reconciliation. We talked about this last time. We need to learn to talk about differences in ways that honor God. One of the things I love in marriage counseling, you got, you got two people here and they got something between them. One of the most fun things, Fun. it it can be very frustrating at times, but it's exciting is what I'm trying to say. It's exciting is that guy sitting right there does not know how to talk about the things that his wife does that bother him without sinning. He doesn't know how to do it. He knows how to get angry, he knows how to be selfish, he knows how to be short, he knows how to be bad-tempered, he knows how to blame, but he doesn't know how to say in an objective way, my wife struggles with worry sometimes. He doesn't know how to say that. My wife uh struggles to follow our budget sometimes. He doesn't know how to say it nice. She's always blowing the budget, I can't believe how do we do that, bring home the money, and she just blows in the credit. That's all he knows. And as Christians, we, we've got to learn how do we talk about our differences in ways that are honoring to God. We can talk about those differences in ways that show respect for the other person's opinion, respect for the person themselves uh, in a kind, gentle way. We, we've got to be able to do that. And, and Ephesians helps us with that. We, we, 4.15 says we speak the truth in love. 25 says we put aside all um, lying 29 says we learn to speak to build up the person, not to tear them down. And we speak to give them grace in a timely word. Um, But learning to talk about our differences in ways that honor God uh, is an essential issue. Now, here's the part that I really want to spend some time on here. Okay, so let's say you've done this. Let's say you've removed the log from your own eye. Let's say you've done that. And you have confessed your sin with one another. There was some disagreement that led to some sin, and there has been uh, some forgiveness that's happened. Okay? And praise God. Now we have a brother and sister, or in the case of Philippians, two sisters that are in... In fellowship, because see, you can't go about solving a problem with somebody if you're in not in fellowship with them. Does that make sense? You know, the way Christians should go about solving a problem is shoulder to shoulder, not by aiming guns at each other. So personal reconciliation brings that humility, brings that unity, brings that fellowship, and now shoulder to shoulder, we can sit down and look at the disagreement and say, how can we work this out? And and there are basically three categories of disagreements. And and what you do as a Christian is very different for all three of these. So, for example, if, if, um, if the disagreement you're having is over fudging some numbers on your small business tax form and you and your spouse are disagreeing on that, how do you handle that? How do you handle that disagreement? you got to look at the Word of God. What does the Word of God say about cheating and stealing? That's right. So if your disagreement with the other person is over an issue of clear biblical sin and righteousness, what does Matthew 18 say you do? You go to your brother in private and you show him his sin. So if, it, if it's a sin issue, and, and, and how does this happen in the church? Well, Maybe, maybe it happens because you're, you're going to somebody and you're saying, you need to work that out with that person that you've come in conflict with because the Bible says you need to go to them. And they say, I don't want to do it. And you say, I'm appealing to you. You are living in sin and you need to repent. This is about the unity of God's church. This is about the gospel. You are living in in unrepentant sin, will you please turn away from it? So if the disagreement is over a clear sin issue, that's what you do. You call them to repentance. And Matthew 18 says, well, if they don't respond, what do you do after that? And Matthew 18 provides a whole process. What do you do, because here's where I think we get really stuck. What do you do if it's a wisdom issue? And a wisdom issue to me is it's a topic that the Bible gives some principles about The Bible has some principles that you can apply to the situation, but the Bible stops short of telling you exactly what to do. That's a gray area. The Bible puts up fences like, um, oh, I don't know, what kind of music do you listen to? What sort of schooling do you choose for your kids? Parenting. (laughs) We talk all morning about parenting. The Bible says a lot about parenting, but it doesn't tell us, what to do in every particular situation. It, it, it gives us principles and then tells us to apply those principles in wisdom. But, you know, the Smith family may do that a little bit differently than the Jones family. So in, if we're having a disagreement over a wisdom issue, what does the Bible say to do? Ask God how to resolve it. Ask God for wisdom. God for wisdom. Yeah, uh, James 1, 5 says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. So, so let's say that you got the Jones family and the Smith family, and they're both applying biblical principles to a parenting situation, but but the dads have gotten into conflict, or maybe the moms have gotten into conflict over what to do in that situation. And, and Mrs. Jones thinks Mrs. Smith is wrong, and Mrs. Smith thinks Mrs. Jones is wrong. What do those two ladies need to do? This never happens, does it? I mean, you, you guys never have these types of situations. What do you do? Let me ask you this. Does everybody have to handle those situations the same? See, wisdom implies there are different ways to do it. What Mrs. Jones needs to do is sit down and talk to Mrs. Smith, humbling herself and saying, Really? Well, we do it a little bit different. Why did you and your husband choose to do it that way? And listen and learn. Maybe look at it a little bit differently. It's a, see, a wisdom issue is an opportunity to learn and grow. That's what it is. And if Mrs. Jones does the same for Mrs. Smith, instead of saying, well, you don't do it right. Well, you don't do it right. Well, you're a bad mom. Well, you're a bad mom too. and Maybe they can humble themselves and learn from each other. And at the end of the day, they may choose to deal with that situation differently. And that's Okay. They can have unity even though they handle that parenting situation differently. That's what I'm saying. We, we have to be able to say, you can be my friend. You can be my close friend. You can be my brother and my sister. We can have unity here even though we don't do everything different. We, we don't make every battle, everything that every difference, this, this battle that I have to die on the hill to convince everybody that I'm right. You know what that is? It's pride. That's what it is. There are so many things in the church that are wisdom gray area issues. What kind of doctor do you go to when you're sick? What, what do you do for the holidays? What, what family traditions do you do? What are your house guidelines? What do you do for entertainment? Those are all wisdom issues. And, and, and the preference issue is very similar. What if it's a preference issue? A preference is, you know, where... Okay, I know this, I know this never causes any conflict. What, where do we put the Christmas tree? Do we do a live tree or a fake tree? Right? Do we go to your parents' house for the holidays or that other parents' house? I know I'm getting personal. The holidays are a huge occasion for preference issues. And you know what God does? God uses preference issues in the holidays to show us the sin in our hearts. That's what he does. And he gives us, he says, this is an opportunity, as Philippians says, to humble yourself and to consider your spouse or your adult child or your neighbor or your friend or your brother or sister sitting in the pew next to you, to consider them as more important than yourself. And you know what? Remember what verse 5 says. When you do that, we're like Jesus. Did you you think about whether it's a live tree or a fake tree, that that's actually an opportunity for you to be more like Jesus or less like Jesus? God rigs the holidays (laughs) for our own sanctification. But the point is, you don't deal with every disagreement the same. You know, you don't call somebody in a preference issue or a wisdom issue to repent if it's a wisdom or a preference issue. And then, what do you do? You pray for help, you work together toward unity of mind. And as we talked about last time, if you can't, if you can't work it out, if it's still problematic, guess what? Where where has God ordained for differences to be worked out? Where is it? What's verse 3 say of Philippians 4? The church. Yeah, that's why we're here. So, so if you're struggling with your spouse, with somebody here, where, where are you supposed to go? You go to your church. You go to that good godly friend that you have. You go to one of your pastors or elders. You go... To a teacher, you go to somebody that you respect and you say, Will you help me? I can't work this out with this other brother or sister, and I need somebody. Will you sit down with us and help us to do that? And and, and that see, if we do that, what does that do? That gives credibility to the gospel. Because the gospel is about reconciliation. We're we're about reconciling with God. The gospel is Jesus reconciling sinners to God, and we illustrate that, we demonstrate that, we show that, we authenticate that by showing how the gospel allows us to reconcile with one another. So a church that is unified, a church that knows how to confess and forgive, a church that knows how to work out disagreements and conflicts in a way that preserves unity and grows the church is a stage... For the gospel. Right? That's why it's one of the two marks of a healthy church. Because it is really fundamentally a gospel issue. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thanks for these verses that remind us of the importance of personal reconciliation and being able to work out our disagreements and conflict. And, And Lord, I know that in my own life, and I know I speak for everyone else here, that this is a very hard thing to do. Father, would you humble us and would you give us grace even this week to work out any disagreements, conflicts that we're having with family members or friends um, so that Jesus can be put on display. Father, we want to be like him. We really, really, really want to be like him. Would you help us to humble ourselves and and take seriously what you've called us to do uh, in this verse? Father, might we do that because we love you and because we want the gospel to be seen for all the beauty and for the brilliance that it is to reconcile God and sinners and even to allow us to reconcile with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.